In the dark, grimy and very northern town of Little Choking, there lived a young boy with an extraordinary secret. You see, whilst Harry Elliot was in most ways a perfectly normal son of a miner, he was also a wizard. Having recently received his invitation to attend wizarding school, his father has woken him early one morning with a command. It's time to get up, Harry Elliot. Time to come with me down the very deep mine shaft and begin to learn your trade. But father, I don't want to be a miner. I hate coal. Now listen here. I've been a miner all my life, and my father was a miner, and his father was a miner, and his father was lead two point in the Royal London Ballet. What I'm saying, Harry, is coal is in your blood, and so are tights. There's no escaping it. But I've been offered a place at Hogwarts School for witchcraft and wizardry. Surely you, as my only living relative, would not want his beloved son to give up such a fantastic opportunity to learn spells and fly a broomstick in the great Quidditch tournaments. Hmm. Spells would be good for cooking food. I'm getting bored of pot noodles, and a broomstick would be very handy for the yard. No, no, you're coming down the mine with me. Get you my first pickaxe from the toy box and help me with the cart. But I want to learn about magical creatures and where to find them. Well, here's a magical canary. Take it with you, and if there's gas in the mine, it dies. What about gruntlehorns and doxies? Nope, just the dying canary. Come on. I was going to learn astronomy atop the tallest tower of the castle. Ah, well, there's another mistake. If you want to learn about astronomy, you need to go to a decent facility with proper technology, somewhere like Jodrell Bank, built by miners. It was. That's just silly. Shut up, you, and get in the lift. The Jodcast. This issue with seventy-five percent less Dave, with Megan Argo, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast May issue. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast for the May episode. Yes, we're missing Dave this time. Yep, he's unfortunately too busy uh, down in London uh, becoming an actor. So it's just Stuart and I for the introduction and hello this month. So coming up this time, we have an interview with Dr. Chris Lintott of the University of Oxford, all about Galaxy Zoo. We have an interview with Professor Kevin McKeegan of UCLA about the Genesis mission. We have your feedback, and we have the night sky with Ian Morrison. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month. Evidence for a black hole at the centre of Omega Centauri. X-ray light echoes show that Sagittarius A-star was active 300 years ago. And radio observations catch a supermassive black hole in outburst. One of the largest and arguably most impressive globular clusters in the sky, Omega Centauri, lies at a distance of almost 5 kiloparsecs from the solar system and has a mass equivalent to 5 million stellar mass stars. The stars with Omega Centauri, however, make it stand out from other globular clusters within the Milky Way's halo. Easily visible to observers in the Southern Hemisphere, Omega Centauri has been known to be unusual for some time. It is larger than other globular clusters and rotates faster than most. There is also plenty of evidence that it consists of more than one generation of stars. Globular clusters are usually made up of just one generation of old stars. 
These anomalies have led to the suggestion that Omega Centauri is actually the core of a dwarf galaxy, which has been stripped of its outer stars. A team of astronomers have used both the Hubble Space Telescope and the Gemini South Telescope to search the cluster for evidence of an intermediate-mass black hole at its core, exactly what you would expect for the core of a dwarf galaxy. By measuring the amount of light coming from the core of Omega Cent in HST images, the team, led by Eva Noyola from the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics in Germany, determined how many stars there were in the core of the cluster. They then used the GMOS instrument on Gemini South in Chile to measure the orbital velocities of stars near the centre of the cluster. The faster the velocities, the more mass there has to be at the centre of the cluster. What they found was that the number of stars seen in the core is not enough to account for the measured velocities, implying that there must be something more massive in the core. The likely explanation for this discrepancy is that the core does indeed contain an intermediate mass black hole, but the authors point out that detailed numerical simulations need to be performed before other theories can be conclusively ruled out. It is thought that all galaxies contain a black hole at their centre, including our own Milky Way. In the case of our galaxy, the black hole, known as Sagittarius A-star, is a supermassive black hole containing around 4 million times the mass of our Sun. But it is in a so-called quiescent state, it is not producing anything like the amount of radiation seen in other far more active galaxies. Japanese astronomers have now used a technique which looks for light echoes, the reflections from material surrounding an event such as an explosion, to determine that Sagittarius A-star went through an outburst only 300 years ago. As gas and dust spirals in towards a black hole, it forms what is known as an accretion disk. Within this disk, material heats up to several million degrees and begins to emit X-rays. The team, led by Tatsuya Inui from Kyoto University, Japan, used observations made by the European Space Agency's Exima-Newton telescope to look for echoes from the X-ray radiation generated during older outbursts. They found that small clouds of gas within the region known as Sagittarius B2 brightened and then faded in X-ray light during observations carried out between 1994 and 2005. This region is close to the centre of our galaxy, but far enough away from the black hole that light and therefore X-rays takes 300 years to reach it. When it hits the cloud, the radiation excites ion atoms, which then re-emit the X-rays, some of them head in the direction of the Earth. Compared to the X-rays which reach us directly from the black hole during the outburst, these X-rays from the light echo take an extra 300 years to reach us. It is still unknown why Sagittarius A-star varies so wildly in its activity, but one suggestion for this particular outburst is a supernova explosion which could have pushed gas into the black hole for a time, resulting in a giant flare. At the extreme end of the scale, some supermassive black holes are so energetic that they produce enormous jets of supercharged particles. Such systems have been observed in many galaxies in the distant universe, but the exact mechanism that creates these blazar jets is still a bit of a mystery, because the high-resolution observations needed to distinguish between various theoretical models had not been made with enough detail. Using the Very Long Baseline Array, a network of ten radio telescopes across the United States of America, a team led by Alan Marsha of Boston University has taken a close-up look at one of these objects. The group used the VLBA to observe a well-known example of a supermassive black hole in the blazar known as BLA-30, or BLLAC, a well-known example of this type of object. The model they put forward is similar to how a jet engine works, although the jet in this case is confined by a very strong magnetic field, rather than a metal nozzle. 
The strong helical field collimates the flow, resulting in a very narrow jet containing material moving at very high velocities. In the case of BLWAC, the jet is pointing almost straight at us and contains material moving at 99% the speed of light. What the radio observations showed is a new blob of material moving along the jet away from the black hole, together with two bursts of very high-energy gamma rays, which probably coincide with the material passing through shock fronts. This is the clearest view yet of how jets actually work. Astrophysical jets are also produced by other types of objects, such as white dwarfs and neutron stars, and it is thought that an insight into how one type of jet forms could help our understanding of jets in other kinds of objects. And finally, to mark 18 years in orbit, a series of 59 spectacular images has been released by the Hubble Space Telescope team. The images, all taken by the HST since its launch on April the 24th, 1990, showcase a series of galactic collisions taking place across the sky. The scale of these events is so enormous that these collisions and mergers can take many hundreds of millions of years to complete. As two or more galaxies pass close to each other, the gravitational forces between them start to distort their shapes into strange and beautiful structures stretching across many hundreds of thousands of light years, often generating long tidal tails of dust and gas. The gas begins to collapse under the influence of the gravitational interaction and stars begin to form, leading to a burst of star formation known appropriately as a starburst. The Hubble Space Telescope is currently expected to continue operations until 2013. Thanks for that, Megan. And now it's time for listener feedback. Stuart? Yes, we had quite a few um, items of feedback regarding the National Astronomy Meeting. We had our mammoth show, which was two and a half hours long. Uh, hopefully everyone survived through that show. Yes, the uh, the, the perceptive of you will realise that there wasn't a April Extra edition because we were too tired at the end of NAM to produce one, so apologies <laughs> for that, but we hope we made up for it with uh, our bumper edition from NAM. Yeah, and we had quite a few comments regarding the length and people actually saying that they found it fascinating and entertaining. So that's thanks to Mike Jones, who said that there's so much information that he needs to listen to it all again. And that's so what we like to hear. He obviously has a long commute to work. Mm. Um, we also had thanks from Francis Day, who's also commenting on the NAM show and was particularly interested in the AstroGrid software and rushed home to log on, but unfortunately their website wasn't quite working at the time. Probably all the Jogcast listeners doing exactly <laughs> the same thing and the crash of the Yes. Also thanks to Gavin from Nutsford. Larry Hunt, and after the jokes that we had from NAM 2007, Toby Shannon was inspired and sent us some more. Or perhaps depressed by the quality. <laughs> <laughs> well, his, his weren't too much better. Still, it's always good to have a bit of humour so, in, in your work, I guess. It is. Do you want, a, do you want an example? Go on, give us an joke. example then. Um, okay, a particle is driving down a road. He glances at the speedometer and says, Oh no, I'm lost! There comes a point where your and knowledge of physics sort of pushes its way into <laughs> appreciation yeah. of the humour. But still, thank you very oh, much sli- for that one. Slightly better. Um, what do you get if you cross a mountain with ears? I don't know. What do you get if you cross a mountain with ears? Mountain ears. Anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> any more feedback? Yes, we had two reviews on iTunes, one from Wes E and one from John F, who said that the Jodcast is a clever and rich astronomy programme from astronomers in the UK. So they were both on the US iTunes store. Regardless of where you are or how you listen to the Jodcast, if you listen via iTunes, please do review us on iTunes, improve our ranking, and uh, spread the it word. It really does help. It does help. It really does help. We've noticed that over the time that we've been pushing people to review us on iTunes, we have improved our rankings on iTunes, and more and more people are listening to us. So do share the love. Do tell everybody about uh, the Jodcast. And if you are a listener via iTunes, please do review us on iTunes. Now, we've also received a postcard. Again, thank you very much for all of those folk who have sent us postcards. 
If you are keen about uh, dropping a line to us at the Jodcast, do send us a postcard, a real thing, a real piece of mail. And so thanks to Bill, who works in the city, and that's a city with a capital C. So that's the city in London. That's the city of London, that's quite right, who uh, sent us a lovely postcard of the London Eye. He writes that he is a BSc in astrophysics, but now works in the city. And it's interesting to note that uh, quite a few astronomers and astrophysicists uh, end up working in the city, the financial uh, district of the city with a capital C. They do. That's, you can get quite a wide variety of careers from doing astronomy. Mm, perhaps we will have a, a show about the people who perhaps trained in physics or astronomy, mathematics, and who now have gone on to do jobs which you don't really associate with you know, hard sciences. And one job that you don't associate with the hard sciences is zookeeping. Now, it just so happens that we cut up with one of the galaxy zookeepers... Chris Lintot. He's the chief zookeeper, in fact. He's the chief zookeeper, yes. And we caught up with him at NAM. He also helped present on NAM show. We caught up with him at NAM and got an update on what's happened with Galaxy Zoo. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. You've been on the Jodcast a couple of times before, talking about Galaxy Zoo. If you can just give us a quick reminder of what Galaxy Zoo is for those listeners who haven't heard you before. Sure. Galaxy Zoo is a project that invites the public to help us do real science. So we have about a million images of galaxies from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, and somebody needs to sort through them by eye to make classifications, because the human brain is much better at this than a computer. We launched officially in July last year, and the response was overwhelming. We've got more than 130,000 members That's so a lot far. Of people. And by January or so, they'd looked at 40 million images. So we're now processing the science, the papers depending on when this comes out, will be out. The first paper's already on AstroPH, and there are more than 20 separate research projects underway. But one of the best bits about Galaxy Zoo is the side effect, is that when you humans look at galaxies, they spot the odd things, the things in the corner of the picture. And the classic example of this is something that's known to us as Hanny's Vorwerp. So where, where does the, the origin of that name come well, from? Well, Hanny is a Dutch schoolteacher, Hanny von Arkel, who sent us an email saying, what's the blue blob in this image? Uh, and Somewhere along the line, somebody started, she or one of the other Dutch users of the forum started referring to it as the Vorwerp. So we thought this was something hugely technical. But as I'm sure some of your listeners will know, Vorwerp means object. But by this stage, we're determined that this name will go down. And I'm hoping it will be a whole new class of object so we can actually have Vorwerps uh, in, if that's the right plural. So what do you know about this Vorwerp? What, what's odd about it? Okay, well, let, let's tell you the story in order. So it's a blue blob. In Sloan. It turns out to be very, very bright in one of the Sloan filters and very faint in the others. Um, so that doesn't make much sense. It's got, it's kind of blobby um, and it's largest. Yeah, blobby. <laughs> no, that's what it looks like. It's near a fairly normal spiral galaxy called IC2497 and there's this blue blob of stuff and it is blobby. It's got some structure um, and it's very, very bright in one of the Sloan colours but right. not in the others. And that's all we knew about it. Um, we thought it might be a distant galaxy, a line, what's called a line-membrane galaxy, so that its, it's light had been redshifted to exactly that wavelength, right. which would have put it at a redshift of two and a bit. That's because it's blue, so it would have to be even blue. Exactly, right. exactly. So a, star, a distant star-forming galaxy. So we went and looked for it with the WHT. One of the nice things about doing this kind of astronomy is you just email friends and say, I see you've got an observing road coming up. Could you possibly look at this <laughs> object for us? And mostly they do. And the spectra confirmed it's at the same distance as IC2497. So that's so a nearby galaxy. That's right. So we've got galaxy, blob, clearly interacting in some way. The spectrum was also very odd because it told us that the gas in this thing was really hot. It's about 15,000 degrees Kelvin. But there aren't any obvious signs of stars. 
So it's about three times hotter than the surface of the that's sun. That's right, but this is not gas. This is, normally you see that sort of temperature in a small galaxy that's just formed a huge number of stars. But we know from the Volvo that there, aren't, there isn't significant star formation, and there aren't large numbers of stars there. So we now have a blob of gas in the middle of nowhere that's very hot. Clearly you suspect its neighbour. Yes. Now its neighbour's a radio galaxy, so it's got some sort of activity at the nucleus, and the Volvert's position, so it could be hit by a jet from the nucleus. So that's oh, the next hypothesis. Radio galaxies often have jets coming from exactly. the central supermassive. And there's no sign of a jet, but we haven't yet got any radio data, so that seems right. reasonable. So the next thing we did was <coughs> try and check for the presence of an active nucleus by looking in the UV and X-ray on the SWIFT satellite. So SWIFT hunts gamma-ray bursts, but the rest of the time it sits around waiting for stuff to do. So you can apply to use its other telescopes to keep an eye on. So we got some very surprising results. We found the Volvert and the Galaxy both glow brightly in UV, but we got a total of three photons in the X-ray in 5,000 seconds. Which isn't very many at all. <laughs> no. Um, we could name them, or we could just assume their background noise. So, so now we've got an active... something. The, we want the Volvert to be zapped by the jet from the Galaxy, but there's not enough activity in the centre. You could put quite a strong constraint on how active you need the, the Galaxy to be to do that. So it's almost as if the culprit has left the scene. So right. we can see the after effects. You can see that the house has been turned over, the Volvert's there happily glowing in, with its hot gas at 15,000 Kelvin, but there's no sign of the culprit. So best guess at the minute is that this is a phenomenon that astronomers have got used to dealing with nearby around supernova, which is a light echo. So imagine, go back 100,000 years. We think that the galaxy, IC 2497, would have been the brightest quasar in the sky has a black hole at the centre with lots of material being accreted, very powerful jets, and very bright. Something happened, and it turned off or it dramatically reduced its luminosity. So we no longer see that activity at the nucleus. But the Volverb is about 50,000 light-years away. Off to one side. Exactly. So it takes 50,000 years for light to get there. So it's still seeing the light that was emitted by the galaxy when it was active. So we think we've caught it just in the act of turning off. Right, and these, these light echoes, we, we see them in other parts of astronomy, like stars as um, V838 Mon. Is that's the that's famous one, yeah. Um, the really nice animation that you get from the HST of that. That's right, and um, people have... There's some really nice re- results that were out last week, in fact, um, or earlier in the year, where you can... We know supernovae went off in our galaxy... And people have looked in the large Magellanic clouds, the neighbouring galaxies, and found the echoes of the supernovae. So by looking at those echoes, you could work out what light was emitted from the star as it went bang, and you can classify the supernovae. It's brilliant. So we're hoping we can do the same thing. If these are light echoes, then encoded in the structure of the Volverp will be the history of what happened as the quasar turned off. And that's important. We know quasars change on a scale of a few years. We mm. see some of them flare and, or even and all on sorts of things. Days, exactly, exactly. And we know that they change on very long time scales because we see the evolution of the population over hundreds of millions and billions of years. But we've never had access to that time scale in the middle, tens and hundreds of thousands of years. And hopefully we can work out what, what happens in that process by looking at the strange blue object. I presume this means we have to look for 50,000 years at it. No, because it's got structure, you see. So the Volverp is about 20,000 light years across. So if you look at the furthest edge, you're seeing a region lit up 70,000 light years, 70,000 years ago. If you look on the near edge, 
you've got 50,000. So you've got 20,000 years of history laid out there for us to read if we can decode it. Now, this is, I should stress, this is all unpublished, and this is the current guess. Um, the next stage is we need more observations. So we've got applications in for Hubble, for the VLA. Um, we might come and use Jodrell if we can think of an excuse. Um, we've got friends on Keck who are hoping to observe it for us. Um, and we're just trying to turn every telescope onto this thing. And what's wonderful is that this is a Dutch school teacher who randomly found this during her spare time. And we've already used some of the biggest telescopes in the world to follow up. It's an amazing story. And we've got a whole list of other objects from Galaxy Zoo, which similarly look odd to the eye. And we need to, we're working our way through the list and we will be following those up as well. Well, this is all great stuff. Um, And our listeners, if you are not already part of the Galaxy Zoo, go and join that. And you may find the next interesting object that gets the whole of the international community looking at the thing that you found. Absolutely. And we, I mean, clearly if you do that, we'll put your name on the paper as well. So you can become a published astronomical author, uh, which is rather fun. And also, by the time this goes out, or around the time this goes out, we'll have launched Zoo 2. And part of the point of Zoo 2 will be deliberately to encourage people to report the odd and the strange to us. So it's going to ask for more detailed classifications of galaxies, but it's also going to build in the fact that we want you to tell us when you see strange blue blobs or green blobs, which people on the forum call peas, or whatever else you find. Gravitational (laughs) lenses is the lot. So please, come and register, join in with Zoo 2, and we'll work on that. And Zoo 3 is already in the back of our heads. Astronomers always have to look to the future. We'll talk to you about that at NAM next year. Very good. Thank you very much for talking to us, Chris. Pleasure. So fascinating stuff from Chris Lintot and Galaxy Zoo and the cast of thousands who are... Hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands who are helping them out categorizing galaxies in Galaxy Zoo. Yeah, it's excellent stuff. And hopefully they'll find out what this verb is. It's all a bit of a mystery, isn't it? Yeah. Speaking of other mysteries, we had an opportunity to talk to Professor Kevin McKeegan from UCLA about the Genesis mission and some of the results from Genesis mission which have started to come in. And a mystery, like I mentioned, a mystery about oxygen. Mm-hmm. So you are a cosmochemist. Cosmochemist. I'm. Uh, uh, all my degrees are in physics. I mean, so I'm trained as a physicist. But uh, and to the extent that I build instrumentation and fly them in space, I'm still doing physics. But most, you know, the the label that fits best in my research is cosmochemist. So, what does that mean? It means um, basically we study. Uh, the origin uh, of the elements and of planetary materials. Mm. So you're specifically looking at the elements in our own solar system. That's right. I mean, it's basically a question of origins. Mm -hmm. And so everything from actually how the elements came to be and how they got into our solar system to the kind of chemistry that's involved, uh, chemistry and physics that's involved in making uh, planets. And, you know, and also even the time scales. So the whole issue of chronology is also something that's in our uh, bailiwick. Yeah. So you have a particular element of interest. Yes. The most interesting element in the solar system, I just <laughs> described it as oxygen. Um, oxygen is the major element on the Earth and in all rocky planets. And it's the third most abundant element in the solar system. Uh, just following from hydrogen and helium. Mm. Um, we, we often think about, because astronomers, we kind of stop after helium because things we just then call, uh, let's call the metals, and right. <laughs> we don't worry about them. Right, so this is one, 
you know, there's a large area of of overlapping interest between astronomers and astrophysicists and cosmochemists having to do with this issue of star and planet formation. But one of the areas that we're, you know, you can tell that some of the our interests diverge is just because, in fact, the astronomers simplify the periodic table to hydrogen, helium, and everything else. And we are pretty much interested only in the everything else. Mm-hmm. So we're not really concerned that much with the hydrogen and helium. Hydrogen to the extent that it affects the chemistry in the in what we call the solar nebula, which astronomers would call the accretion disk uh, of, of the sun. Um, helium, not so much really, because it, it doesn't make rocks. <laughs> <laughs> and presumably that's where oxygen comes in. That's where oxygen comes in, indeed. Um, oxygen is such an interesting element because um, by virtue of its abundance and its chemistry, it is the dominant element in rocks, but it's also a very important element in the gas phase. So in the gas phase in, in our solar nebula, it exists as um, both carbon monoxide, CO, and also H2O. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as in some minor compounds, but those would be the major compounds, and and then in the dust. And so the fact that oxygen can partition between these different um, phases gives it some interesting properties and gives it a kind of diagnostic capabilities that we'd like to understand. What are these interesting properties that oxygen has? Okay, well, actually, uh, in order to really discuss the the properties of oxygen, we also need to not only talk about its chemistry, but its isotopes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so oxygen has um, three stable isotopes, uh, oxygen 16, 17, and oxygen 18. Um, so all of oxygen has, uh, has eight protons. That's what makes it oxygen. All right, so, uh, but the 17 and 18 have one extra neutron compared to oxygen-16. So oxygen-16, eight protons and eight neutrons, and oxygen-17, eight protons and nine neutrons, and and uh, oxygen-18 then would have ten neutrons. Now, that in itself is, is uh, important because um, the oxygen isotopes themselves are made in different kinds of nucleosynthetic processes in different kinds of stars. So the overwhelming majority of oxygen, the stuff that we're breathing now, is oxygen-16, all right? So it's if you have 10,000 atoms of oxygen, then only 20 of those atoms will be oxygen-18, and mm-hmm. only four, roughly, will be oxygen-17. And the rest, 9,900 and whatever, 2076, I guess, if I did my math right, um, are oxygen-16. And the, and the reason is that oxygen-16 is just made more prevalently in stars. It's on the direct alpha nucleosynthesis chain, whereas oxygen-17 and 18 require seed nuclei, and they're made in different stellar environments. Hmm. So right away we have these differences in isotopes, and this occurs for almost all the elements, this, these kind of differences. And what happens is that as um, the material is ejected from stars and goes through the interstellar medium and eventually winds up in, uh, in some kind of a dense region of a molecular cloud that's going to collapse and form an accretion disk and form a star, that all these different uh, sources get mixed up. And we get, for most of the elements in the periodic table, this mixing process is extremely thorough such that we can define a, quote, normal composition, which by normal we mean the composition that's here, 
<laughs> this is always the way we define normal, right? Yeah. The earth is at the center of everything until we find out that it's not. <laughs> All right. And so that's very much the, what we're um, after in, in terms of this project, uh, this Genesis project, is a question of understanding origins. And uh, it turns out that we've known now for 35 years since the pioneering work done at the um, University of Chicago by Bob Clayton and his colleagues that the oxygen in the, that went into the solar system is not isotopically well homogenized. What does that mean? That means that different meteorites and different every different sample of a planetary rocky object that we have our hands on, when you analyze it in detail in the laboratory in a mass spectrometer, have some differences in, the, in their relative abundances of oxygen 16, 17, and 18, that cannot be ascribed to kind of normal chemical differences that we know about from the rocks in the garden out here or the or the oceans or or what have you okay mm-hmm. so there there's some difference in the way these oxygen isotopes distribute themselves that either reflects some uh inheritance this was the original idea that it reflects an inheritance from the pre-solar cloud, the you know, from whatever wherever our material came from, from whatever ensemble of stars contributed oxygen to to eventually make the Earth and the planets and the sun, or that there's some uh, processes that go on during this uh, epoch of planet formation that cause differences. So, for example, um, we have some meteorites that we think come from Mars. We have other, you know, meteorites that we know come from various asteroids. And if we um, grind up these uh, rocks and analyze them in the mass spectrometer, we'll find out that the um, relative amounts of oxygen-16 they have compared to the 17 and 18 are distinct. Mm. Okay, so if I um, would give you a rock... Um, and, uh, you know, you could take it to a mass spectrometer and you could tell me whether this was an earth rock or not. Yeah. Just on the basis of the oxygen isotope. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a fingerprint. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, Clayton made his discovery on certain phases in, uh, primitive meteorites where these effects are quite large. Uh, quite large in this context means several percent. All right. So we're, we're really dealing with, uh, um, high precision measurements that have to be made. This is a problem though, surely, because when you take a look at meteorites, we've always assumed that meteorites are the debris from the formation of the solar system, presumably the Earth formed from the same material. Why should the fraction of oxygen isotopes be different in meteorites compared to what we find on Earth? That's an excellent question, and uh, um, truth is, no one knows the answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But we know that there is a difference. Uh, we know that there is a difference, and in fact, this is, uh, there are uh, a small uh, group of people who like to think about how to make an Earth. Mm-hmm. I mean, not just an Earth, but the Earth. And they can take various um, things that we know or we think we know about the Earth, such as, you know, the ratio of one kind of chemical element to another, um, magnesium to silicon or aluminum to silicon ratios, uh, and then try to make this compatible with what we know about the isotopic structure of those elements that are in the Earth. 
And when people do this exercise, they cannot agree. So we do not know how to make the Earth, in mm. fact, out of the existing meteorite population. There are very few meteorites which are absolutely compatible with uh, the oxygen isotopes of the Earth. And those have other differences that it's hard to imagine that the Earth comes directly from them. So the Earth is a mixture of different materials. Um, presumably most of that material formed uh, somewhere around one astronomical unit or at least at some time was found in that region, and that the Earth um, at, at some point uh, reached enough gravity that it started to agglomerate all these materials to itself. And, 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 and that composition then on the Earth has become homogenized because of the great internal heat engine of the Earth. So mm -hmm. all the oxygen on the Earth is homogenized, by virtue of um, of this geologic activity on the Earth that's been going on for billions of years. So that means the homogenization of oxygen isotopes on the Earth means that the mm -hmm. oxygen, whatever we find in seawater, for instance, is the same, or the ratio of isotopes of oxygen we find in seawater is the same as we find in rocks, is the same we find in trees. It's Yes. To, it's not exactly the same, but the differences are well understood, and it's compatible with having equilibrated with with each other mm. in some way. So there is a subtle partitioning of the oxygen isotopes that goes on between, say, waters and rocks. And this, in fact, is one of the ways we know about the paleoclimate on the Earth because this partitioning of the oxygen isotopes between uh, minerals that will precipitate out of water and the water is temperature dependent. Right. So things like uh, corals could record this or, um, or other forms of... Uh, carbonate deposits will record this. And this is how we think we understand things about ocean temperatures into past geologic time. So th mm. that's completely, re reasonably completely well understood but process. But I'm talking about something different in the sense that the differences between meteorites and between planets are, are differences such that those reservoirs of material, of oxygen, were never homogenized with each other, or mm. they're not now. If they were, there was a way to split them up in a way that is not normal kind of chemistry. So is this, does this suggest that the original planetary nebula had pockets of different uh, isotope ratios? Yes, absolutely. Mm. And these pockets are, some of these differences are preserved in meteorites, and then, uh, and then on a larger scale they're preserved actually in, in planets. The, the fact that the Earth and the Moon, for example, have identical oxygen isotope ratios is the major argument that the origin of the Earth and the origin of the Moon are intimately related, and that the the Earth did not, for example, capture the Moon mm. randomly afterward, after it formed somewhere else and came by. It would be extremely unlikely that the Moon would be the very, Earth. very unlikely. Yeah, yeah. have exactly the same isotope ratios. Right. Mm. Exactly. So I, I guess um, people would have considered this in their formation models of uh, the, the protoplanetary nebula in the, in the solar system. Mm-hmm. And they'd go away to their computers and work out whether it is possible to maintain separate pockets of distinct isotope mm -hmm. ratio regions in the, in the nebula. Is, is that possible, do you think? Um, well, what people have been trying to understand is what are the mechanisms which could give rise to these distinct populations of oxygen isotope, you know, objects in the solar system. And there are a number of uh, ideas, hypotheses that have been put forth, and the, the problem is, um, in in choosing between these various ideas, we don't really know where to start from. 
All right, so um, it's as if, okay, at the moment, the situation is we kind of have a, a map of the solar system, the inner solar system, in terms of these oxygen isotope parameters. The problem is we don't know how to read this map because we don't know anything about what the starting composition is uh, this is very unusual. In most cases, we make an approximation. Things are so homogenized that we can at least come up with an approximate uniform composition. Uh, and from that, we try to understand small deviations from that. Um, in the case of oxygen, it's just not possible because every meteorite class, you know, meteorite gives us a different answer. And, and there's no reason a priori to choose one over the other. Um, so people want to develop uh, an understanding of the processes that could cause this, whether it's uh, input from another star, uh, whether it's some kind of chemical process that occurs during the solar nebula phase before the accretion of planetesimals and, and things like the Earth, or whether it's something else. And the answer, to some extent, has to be sought by expanding our database, and the best way to do that is to actually sample the sun. Uh, because as it stands right now, we reference things that we know about the sun are really defined from primitive meteorites in high precision. This is a kind of, um, uh, I don't want to say house of cards, but it's philosophically on shaking <laughs> grounds because, the, you know. Banquet, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the solar abundances for the refractory uh, elements, okay, so not for things like hydrogen and helium and, and you know, abundant volatile elements in the sun, but for everything else, for the, you know, the iron, the copper, the zinc, the barium, whatever element you care to name that astronomers would just call a metal, um, but chemists care about, <laughs> these are defined by the analyses of meteorites. And in particular, you know, there's a few, a class of meteorites which is thought to be more chemically primitive, unaltered than others. And so it's very strange that, you know, some rock falls out of the sky in 19th century France. We measure this and now we put it, it's in a drawer in a museum and we say, that's what the sun is. Okay. Well, that's a strange concept. <laughs> and the, the problem is we can do this for the refractory objects, but for, of refractory elements, but for things that really exist also in a gas phase that don't go into rocks, we know that that answer must be wrong. Mm -hmm. And one of them is oxygen, the most important one. So, you know, whereas for barium, for example, we can under we pretty much have a good model of what the barium in the sun must be and what the average barium in the solar system must be, for oxygen we have no idea. And so the best way to, to do this is to go get a piece of the sun and measure directly the ratios of oxygen 16, 17, and 18 uh, in solar material. Bring us nicely to the Genesis Absolutely. mission. Tell us about right. the Genesis mission. Okay, so that is the major goal, the highest science priority goal of the Genesis mission. There are other ones we can talk about later as well. But uh, the idea of Genesis is to actually capture a bit of the sun and bring it back to... Uh, terrestrial laboratories to do the kind of detailed analyses that have to be done to to see these small differences, okay, um, percent level or less differences in these isotope abundances. And uh, this is what the, the mission accomplished. I mean, it's conceptually fairly simple. Um, it's very difficult to go to the sun and, and get a shovel full of it, okay, because it's 6,000 <laughs> degrees on the surface and you know, the standard standard crack is, well, couldn't you go at night? You know, okay, well, 
No. <laughs> um, and so what you do is you let the sun come to you. Okay. The sun, uh, the sun, uh, of course has a lot of gravity, but it's also, um, uh, very hot and the interactions with the magnetic fields of the sun create a very high temperature atmosphere, the solar corona. And this has enough, um, energy that it can actually be expelled from the sun as a kind of wind. All right. So this, uh, solar, the solar wind, you know, pervades the entire solar system, expands out from the sun in a complicated way. It's what gives rise to the aurora on, on Earth. So the northern lights and so on are the interaction of the solar wind with our atmosphere. And if you can put a spacecraft outside the magnetic field of the Earth, um, you can be hit by the solar wind. And so that's the idea of Genesis, is that you take uh, very pure materials, you get them outside the magnetic sphere of the Earth, and and then you expose them to the sun, and the solar wind uh, are, is a, a wind of atomic ions. It's a, it's a plasma, so it's char- It's a electrically charged, uh, but it's you know it's it's particulate material. I mean, it's it's atomic nuclei that are ionized. And it has enough energy that if it strikes a solid material, it can um, implant itself very, very slightly below the surface. And so it'll go in and stick. Hmm. And so that's the idea. So that's what we did. Um, uh, the Johnson Space Center in, in Houston, they uh, assembled uh, uh, in an ultra-clean environment these really high-purity materials um, that were then put on a spacecraft and flown out about a, about a million miles toward the sun, toward the so-called Lagrange Point L1. Um, and uh, there it, you can uh, basically um, stay there with very minimal expenditure of energy and go around with the Earth for two years while staring at the sun, collecting the solar wind. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after the, the collection time, the, the collectors are stored back into a um, sample return capsule. Think of a giant clamshell kind of arrangement that closes up. And then the spacecraft just gently cruises back to Earth um, and drops off its payload, which comes back to the Earth, which we collect. Big advantage of doing the sample return missions is that you don't need to jam a, a satellite or, a, sorry, a spacecraft full of uh, analysis equipment. Absolutely. This is a, an enormous advantage, and it's a huge credit to Don Burnett, who's the principal investigator of the mission, who's, uh, who's a professor at Caltech, that he convinced NASA that not all of the mission hardware has to be launched from the surface of the Earth. So, for example, the instrument that is in my laboratory, which made some of these oxygen isotope measurements, um, weighs, I'm not sure, somewhere around seven or eight tons. <laughs> okay, so this was not something that you really want to spend to, to the money to launch it. And uh, But sample return missions, in all seriousness, they have uh, really huge advantages, um, both in terms of practical issues like mass and energy and, and so on, but also philosophically. Very important is that measurements can be repeated. Mm, yeah. Questions can be asked which were not pre-anticipated. So if I'm going to send... The spacecraft to Jupiter, I have to know when I go by that, you know, when I get there, what am I going to do? 
and you may not get that many chances to change your mind. And that's not the way normal science works. Normal science works by scientists oh, challenging by the way, each we other. Oh, try this. You know. Yeah, <laughs> they challenge each other, or you find something unexpected, and you have to follow up on it, and so on. And this is, uh, you know, a huge advantage. I mean, the moon rocks are still being worked on 35 years later mm. um, after somebody left the moon, and, and we were still learning a lot from that because of that dynamic. So... Now, the Genesis uh, return capsule landed mm-hmm. in spectacular fashion in the Utah desert. We spectacular, spoke yes. Uh, inelegant, <laughs> inelegant, we like to yes. say. Yes. We, uh, we spoke with Don Burnett about uh, the, the, the details of, of that particular um, <laughs> aspect of the mission. So we won't right. go into it here. But suffice to say that um, we learned from Don Burnett that pretty much all of the science goals of the Genesis mission will be accomplished. That's despite right. the fact that the, the capsule crash landed. That's right. You you, uh, you made the point that you have now quite a few more uh, samples returned than <laughs> or at least yes. smaller pieces. I think Don Don put it put it well at at one point uh, after after the uh, crash. He said um, something to the effect of, "Well, if you're going to hit a planet, Earth is the best one." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Because you can literally pick up the pieces. First of all, you can also tell what went wrong. We know unequivocally what went wrong. Whereas if you crash into Mars, you're never maybe quite sure. Yes, yes, um, yes. But yes. we've got the samples back, and the crash it was not uh, such that you, you, you could not dislodge those solar wind ions mm-hmm. out of the sample by, uh, by, by crashing them at uh, terminal velocity into the desert floor in, in, in Utah or as I like to say, dropping them from the top of the atmosphere. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, there was, a, there was some problems with uh, additional difficulties with uh, contamination and uh, also sample size, uh, you know, not being as readily available and so on. That's made, it's slowed progress. But again, the strength of a sample return mission is that eventually it doesn't matter how long it takes. Yes, you, you still can get it. there. Yes. You still can get there. Right? Now, let's talk about how you actually... Get the little bits of solar wind out of mm-hmm. your ultra pure uh, collector material. Okay, so we worked on something uh, uh, from a dedicated part of the spacecraft called the concentrator, which really was dedicated toward enhancing the concentration of oxygen. So it would focus focus uh, preferentially oxygen into a smaller target, and the target that uh, is chosen for this application is. A single crystal of silicon carbide, which is very pure in the sense there's an unmeasurably low amount of oxygen that's in it. Mm. But there's still oxygen contamination on the surface. And the solar wind is implanted in a, you know, the solar wind ions come in with different angles and different energies, so they don't all go to the same depth. There's a distribution of depths. And the peak of that distribution is something like in our case, 70 or 80 nanometers uh, below the surface. So you've got to figure out a way of discriminating between the oxygen at 70 nanometers below the surface contaminant of, of oxygen on the surface of your collecting material. That's right. That's right. So we have we have contamination on the surface. We have background in our instrument. And then we have this sample of the, sol- of the sun, but it's only 70 nanometers or so below the surface. And the way that we... Um, uh, uh, do this is we exploit an instrument which was actually developed uh, or found major application mm-hmm. in the semiconductor industry, um, which is called a uh, secondary ion mass spectrometer, 
basically what you do is you have your sample surface and you shoot a beam of ions at the sample. Uh, the beam is focused down and you can raster it or move it across the sample surface. And the beam has enough energy <clears throat> that when it impacts the sample surface, it will uh, break atomic bonds and it will liberate material from the surface of the sample. And it will er physically erode it. So think about like sandblasting on an atomic scale. Mm -hmm. And we literally erode this atomic layer by atomic layer. As we do this, there's some mixing that goes on, and we want to minimize that. Um, but we have ways to, to try to minimize that so that we can then, you know, we hit the surface. Most of that is terrestrial oxygen, either from our laboratory or from the Utah desert or from, you know, being in the air at, in Texas, which is very humid. Anybody's been there <laughs> um, or so forth. And we wanted to, we get rid of that by just physically eroding it away. And then as we, as we, it's called sputtering. As we sputter into the sample, we um, will see the oxygen concentration go down, and then we see it come back up. And then that peak of oxygen that we see is the solar oxygen that's been put into the sample uh, in space. Hmm. And so our job then is to is to erode through this uh, implanted layer of oxygen, and to quantitatively count. We count literally atom by atom that comes out of there, um, as long as they come at less than about one million per second, we can count them all. Wow. <laughs> about a, over a million per second, we start losing some track, but, yeah. but we know that. <laughs> roughly, roughly how many are you counting per second? Um, at the peak of that oxygen profile from the sun, we're up to about 100,000 oxygen 16s per second, right. but that's only about 40 oxygen 17s, and yes. that's, that's the problem. We have this, we have to do both. Yes. We have to be able to accurately count at 100,000 per second and at only a few per second. How are you discriminating between the two isotopes? Okay, so the, when the, um, when the, uh, the ions are released from the sample. Well, when the atoms are released from the sample by the sputtering process, some of them get ionized in that process. And they get ionized, uh, they, they gain an extra electron, and so they become a negative ion of either oxygen-16, oxygen-17, or oxygen-18. Once they have an electric charge, then we know we can manipulate them almost at will. So we can put them in a strong electric field, and we can collimate this beam of ions, and then if we make it pass through a magnetic field, they'll get spread out according to their charge-to-mass ratio. In the, in the experiments that we've done for Genesis, we do one other little trick, um, and that is that we take this beam of negative oxygen ions, and we inject it into an accelerator, which takes their energy from not very much, all the way up to well over a million volts. And and at, when they're at that high energy of a million volts, we remove electrons from them by having them have interactions with a, with a gas of argon. Um, and the reason we do this is because in addition to the oxygen isotopes that we collect, this uh, process of sputtering, although it's really, really good, for having good sensitivity and also for being able to discriminate against the surface oxygen, it doesn't just make ions of atomic ions of oxygen. Okay, whatever's in the sample will come out in an ion. 
And one of the things that's in the sample is hydrogen because the sun is mostly hydrogen. So we can't avoid that. There's a hydrogen implanted in the sample. And the problem is hydrogen will attach itself to oxygen. All right. If, if two hydrogens attach, it becomes water. It's H2O. I'm not so worried about that. That doesn't happen that often in the sputtering process. But one of the things that does happen is that one hydrogen will attach itself and it will make an OH minus ion. Mm-hmm. And a hydroxyl ion. A hydroxyl ion. Mm-hmm. So the OH, um, the problem is oxygen 16 is so much more abundant than oxygen 17. If I attach a hydrogen to an oxygen 16, it will look to a mass spectrometer like oxygen 17. So I have to get rid of that. Mm-hmm. So the way we do that is when we take this beam up to a million volts and we have it encounter argon, electrons are stripped off in this process and molecular bonds don't like to have uh, two or three electrons removed. Um, that's what's holding the molecule together, so the molecule blows itself apart. So coming out the other end of this accelerator, now I have a positively charged beam, but there no, there's nothing in it except oxygen, 16, 17, and 18. So if I can <clears throat> collimate this beam, and again, I pass it through a very big magnet in this case, I separate those beams out physically, so they're 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 uh, you know something like ten centimeters apart, and then I put detectors there that can individually count the arriving ions. Everything's under computer control, of course, and all we then have to do is just get the relative abundances of the, of these things, and uh, and that is the number that we're after. So it's a lot of work to get actually two numbers. <laughs> <laughs> so the big question is. What is so, the isotope ratio of the sun? Yes, the, yes. The so we have uh, some uh, initial data that are um, extremely exciting and uh, and surprising to many people because it looks like there's a large difference between the Earth and planetary materials and what we find for the sun, and the sense that the sun is more enriched in oxygen sixteen by um, somewhere around six or seven percent uh, compared to the Earth and compared to Mars and other meteorites, all of which have differences from each other, but are, but those differences are rather small. The sun appears very, very different. Hmm. So now we're in a situation where we need to understand what happened to make a star and then make its planets, at least in the inner solar system where we have samples, um, you know, so different in terms of the most abundant element that makes rocks. So it looks like the Earth is completely anomalous. It's weird. We used to think, we used to define normal for oxygen based on ocean water. Well, there's nothing special about the ocean except that there's a lot of it on the surface of this planet, and we like it, of course. <laughs> but other than that, from a cosmic perspective, it's not special. And and now it looks that it's weird. Yeah. We have much more ocean than we have solar wind, uh, at least in, 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 in ultra-pure materials that we can analyze. So. That's, that's true. Yeah, it's <laughs> certainly a convenient reference. <laughs> I'm not arguing that. It's just that now it looks like the sun is very different uh, from that. And our challenge is to understand um, how that's come to be and what it tells us about planet formation. And as you mentioned earlier, it's a bit of a mystery. It's still a bit of a mystery. Yes, it's very early days. The data, these data have not yet been published. <laughs> um, we're working toward that. Uh, there's a few loose ends we need to tie up. Um, and then it will be time for trying to understand what they're telling us. And there are several competing models 
um, out there. Uh, they need to all be evaluated in the context of the data and, um, and, uh, and then look for confirmation or not. Uh, you know, the models will be useful to the extent that they can make predictions about other things that we should see, and then we have to, that's how we'll bootstrap our way to learning more about this whole process. Fantastic. Thank you very, very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure. Thank you. We look forward to the results. Okay. So there you go. An interesting mystery about oxygen in the solar system. Exciting stuff. Well, let's go to our regular monthly segment, which is The Night Sky with Ian Morrison. Well, The Night Sky for May. As the sun sets, the constellations of Taurus the Bull and Gemini are setting over towards the west. Leo is fairly high in the southwest, and over to the lower left of the constellation Leo is the constellation of Virgo, fairly empty area of the sky as seen by our unaided eye there is one bright star spiker the brightest star of Virgo but telescopes show a wonderful number of galaxies forming part of what is called the Virgo cluster that stretches from Denebola which is the sort of the tail of Leo the lion across towards spiker but as I said to our eyes we don't see anything too exciting uh, above Leo, high in the sky, is the constellation of Ursa Major, the Great Bear. The part that we always see is the latter part, the body and the tail of the bear, that we call in England the plough, but in the United States they call it the Big Dipper. And it's a very nice constellation with lots of interesting things to look at. Uh, on the night sky page of the Jodrell Bank website, in fact, there's quite a complete description of some of the many objects you can see in the region of all of these constellations. So what about the planets? Well, it's actually not a bad month for planets. Um, one thing that we'll be able to see at its best this year is the planet Mercury, because it reaches what is called greatest elongation. That's the greatest angle away from the sun uh, around the middle of the month. And the angle of the ecliptic is fairly steep, steeply inclined to the horizon. So it's actually, for a few days, well above the horizon. Um, if it were clear on the 6th of May, we could have a wonderful skyscape, low in the west, just to the west-northwest actually, just after sunset. Closest to the horizon will be that lovely little star cluster, the Pleiades, then we'll have a very thin crescent moon. I think it'll be 1.6 days after new. That really is thin. And just above that to the left, the planet Mercury. On the night sky page, I've actually put a track of Mercury over the, the first couple of weeks of May, so you can see where it should be in the sky. I, I think you'll need binoculars. You'll also need somewhere where you have a very good low western horizon because I'm afraid they're not terribly high in the sky, but it would be a wonderful chance to see not only a very thin crescent moon, but also the planet Mercury. Now, Saturn is, of course, visible fairly high in the southwest after sunset. It's in the constellation of Leo, and it starts a month just uh, two degrees to the left, or towards the east, perhaps I should say, 
of Leo's brightest star, Regulus. It's not quite as bright as we sometimes see it because the rings are closing and next year they'll be edge-on, so for a couple of times we won't actually see the, the rings at all. But because their angle is inclined quite steeply to us, there's rather less reflecting area, so as a whole, Saturn appears less bright than it sometimes does. But it's well worth looking at, and if you have a small telescope, you can easily pick up its brightest moon, which is Titan. And if you have perhaps an 8-inch telescope and dark skies, you should be able to see perhaps three or four other satellites as well. It's a very worthwhile object to observe. Now, Jupiter, it's been a morning object for a month or so, but in fact by the end of May it actually rises just before midnight. At the beginning it's about 1.30, about three hours or so before sunrise. And uh, sadly, this year and in fact it's been the same last year and a bit next year, it is at the lowest point in the ecliptic, ecliptic being the path of the sun round the sky. And it's where the sun is during midwinter, so that uh, the sun, as you know, isn't very high then. The trouble is that means we see it through a fairly thick atmosphere. That has two effects. One is simply that the little turbulence bubbles that we have in the atmosphere tend to blur the image. But another one is, is due to refraction, that uh, the images we see of Jupiter in the different colours of light are stacked one above the other. That also has a blurring effect. So with a telescope, you can actually sometimes see a clearer image looking through what's called a narrow-band filter. They cost about £60. There's one in the oxygen-3 line, a sort of a greenish colour line. And because you're looking at just one wavelength of light, then the effects of refraction don't matter. So that might be a trick if you're trying to observe uh, Jupiter with a, with a telescope. But you'll still be able to see the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. Well, there's not many to go. Uh, Mars is still nice and high in the sky after sunset. It's in the constellation of Gemini. On May the 5th, it actually moves from Gemini into Cancer. And on the 5th, the night of the 5th, it's actually in a direct straight line with the stars Castor and Pollux of Gemini. Uh, I saw it the other night, actually, looking interestingly close. But uh, in a couple of days' time, by, by May the 5th, you'll actually see a dead straight line well worth looking out for. It's getting fairly small now, just about five arc seconds. It looks a sort of a salmony pink colour. So it's very unlikely you'll see any detail with a telescope. I, I was very surprised when a colleague of mine showed me uh, a webcam-based image taking many, many short exposures and sacking them together just a week or so ago. And it did, in fact, so show Certis Major. So, with luck, it is still just possible to see a little detail on the surface of Mars. Um, there's a very nice website called Astronomy Photograph of the Day. We always call it APOD. So just put APOD into Google, you'll find it. And in the last month, it's had some lovely photographs of the moon of um, one of the moons of Mars and uh, a great detail image showing one of the craters so that perhaps will be worth looking at the only planets I haven't mentioned are the bright ones is Venus it's very very low 
above the horizon at the moment, almost impossible to observe because of the glare of the sun. We're going to have to wait really towards mid to end July to actually see it in the evening sky. It has been a morning object, but it's very, very close to the sun now and probably not worth trying to look for. Well, in fact, I have actually mentioned some of the highlights of the month already. There's nothing really much more to say. We don't have any um, meteor showers of any note this month. But perhaps I could bring your attention to a little bit on the Night Sky website that tells you where and when to look for the International Space Station. Um, at a Macclesfield Astronomy Society meeting earlier in April, uh, it, there was a pass due during the meeting. We went out just below the Lovell Telescope and a colleague of mine took a wonderful photograph, not only of the International Space Station, but also Jules Verne, which is the unmanned transfer craft to carry cargo up to the space, uh, International Space Station. So have a look at that picture. Um, I'm afraid I have looked to see if there are any reasonable viewings of the International Space Station during May. From England, sadly not. One night I think you can see it rather low in the south uh, from London, but it's not a good month, I'm afraid, to see it. But do look at that site every so often, and you never know, you might find it'll cross the sky high above you, and it really does look very, very impressive. So, good hunting for the month of May. Now, we've had an, an email from... Um, Paul Medway, or Meadway, and he says, I have just borrowed a telescope to have a poke about the sky, but I'd really like to be able to take some photographs. What would be a good beginner's telescope that I could do this with? Would I need to have a camera with specific features? Well, let's assume that we're talking about digital cameras now, and uh, there are lots and lots of compact cameras, and in fact, any of these can be used with a telescope to take very nice photographs it doesn't really ma matter too much what the telescope is. Um, the first thing to try and do is to have a, a, a go at photographing the moon. The moon's very bright, so the exposures are basically a hundredth or two hundredth of a second, and so you don't even have to have a camera mounted on the telescope or on a tripod. You can just look through the telescope at the moon, focus it, and then hold your camera up to the eyepiece and press the button. And with a bit of luck, it will focus, and you'll have a very nice little image of the moon. It's a very good way to start. Now, if you want to photograph fainter objects, like, say, the Pleiades cluster, other objects like that, then you need longer exposures. And that means you do have to mount the telescope rigidly with the camera. There's a device called the Barda Planetarium Microstage. Sounds a bit complicated. Basically, it's a little stage on which you can mount your camera and you can dial it across and also vertically so you can actually get the position of the lens of the camera precisely aligned with the eyepiece of the telescope. That's actually quite important. And when you do that, obviously the two are rigidly aligned. The, the stage actually clamps around the eyepiece, so it's actually quite easy to use and you can then start taking longer exposure photographs. Um, a lot of cameras will have a night mode, and sometimes they will actually take a photograph, let's say with an exposure of 30 seconds, and it will all go quiet for another 30 seconds as it takes a second image, but without opening the shutter. 
And that allows it to eliminate the effect of what are called hot pixels, little bits of the CCD array that perhaps uh, show up when they shouldn't do. Uh, I have a little Panasonic Lumix FX12, I think, only costing £100, and even that has that feature. So that's something to look out for, a sort of a night mode where it actually does take uh, what's called uh, um, a, a dark sky frame, a, a blank frame, so it can actually correct for any errors in the CCD array. What sort of telescope should you use? Well, a very nice telescope that I review on the website is, is, is the Celestron um, 130 SLT. It's a little a Newtonian reflector, 130 millimeters aperture. Very nice, on quite a nice mount, and I've certainly used the technique I've just mentioned on that telescope to take some nice photographs. At far greater expense, one can get some lovely small refractors, about 80 millimeters aperture, but uh, they tend to cost a hundred pounds, a couple hundred pounds, and then you have to mount, have a mount as well. So the Celestron informs either with a computerized mount or without, you can get from, let's say, 180 pounds upwards. Just have a hunt around on the websites and see what you can get. Skywatcher produced some very nice ones, which perhaps are a little bit cheaper. So anyway, best of luck. Thanks for that, Ian. Yes, and thanks also to Phil Meadway for asking a question about how to take photographs using a telescope. And you've noticed, of course, that Ian has kindly answered that for you. If you have got any other questions about observing with a telescope, binoculars, or even with the naked eye, astrophotography, do send them in. And we'll ask Ian very nicely if he wouldn't mind answering those questions for you, just as he's done with Phil. So, that's it for this episode of the Jodcast. Join us next time when we'll be talking to Anthony Challoner of the University of Cambridge to find out more details about the cosmic microwave background. And we'll also be asking your questions to Tim O'Brien. And speaking of questions, if you've got any questions about astronomy, do please send them in via our webpage at www.jodcast.net and we'll get them answered. Now, we know that we've been a little bit slow in answering your questions recently. We've got a big backlog of questions to answer and Tim will be answering those questions as quickly as we can. So do please keep those questions coming in, and we'll get Tim to answer them for you. So that just leaves us to say thank you to Chris Lintott, to Kevin McKeegan, Megan Argo, Ian Morrison, to Chris Britton for the intro and outro script, and in the intro and outro, David McIver was the narrator, Chris Britton was Harry, David Alt was Harry's dad, and Clem Angus was Slagrid, and to the Science and Technology Facilities Council for their continued support of the Jodcast. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to us. Once again... Do please send us your feedback and any questions you have about astronomy to www.jodcast.net. Thanks for listening and do tell your friends. So, until next time, goodbye. Bye, everyone. Much later, back in the house... Harry Elliott and his mean miner of a father are sitting down for a meagre supper of spicy chicken pot noodle. Aren't you hungry? Eat up, I went easy on you today, but tomorrow you're coming to the face. I was just thinking about being in the Great Hall, with foods from all over the world prepared by the house elves appearing magically in front of me. None of that. Get these ridiculous ideas out of your head, boy. You're a miner. What now? I'm Slagrid. 
groundkeeper of Hogwarts, once shun protector of that heap, and giant I'll have you know. Ah, it's the great demon of the mines. Be gone from our house, oh smoky one. I... gosh darn, well I don't think I will. I'm here for Harry, to take him away from this place. So Harry, do you know why you're special? Yes, I'm a wizard. Oh, so you know about that, right? Did you know that I'm invited to attend Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry for the new term starting on the 1st of September? Yes, I do. Where are you going, Slagrid? Don't you want to hug me while the music swells and tears will appear in your eyes? Um, no. Good luck with him, Mr. Elliot. Mine seems the perfect place to keep him occupied. You're sure you don't want him? He is quite irritating. No, thank you. Good boy, Mr. Elliot. Good luck with the boy. Thank you, Slagrid.